I think it was, was it Bill Clinton's advisor that used that phrase, it's about the economy stupid? Well, I think the advice to a CEO would be, it's about the people stupid. And an event like that, I mean, it doesn't have to be as, as extreme as a murder, but it really brings home how, how it's all about the people and always was. Um, nothing's more important than, you know, trying to do the right thing by the people around you 360 degrees. And that's what your job becomes. From Positive Momentum, this is Meet the CEO, a show that takes you behind the scenes of working lives of people who have reached what some might call the pinnacle of the career ladder. I'm Phil Rance, a partner of Positive Momentum, and on today's show, we meet Chris Haberman. Chris was co-founder and CEO of the pioneering online survey firm Research Now back in 2000, just as market research started to move from telephone to the web. Research Now led the way with this transition, listing on AIM and going on to become the global market leader in survey data collection through a series of mergers. Following a successful exit to a private equity consortium, Chris left Research Now and took some time out before going on to become CEO of Rated People, the UK's online marketplace connecting homeowners with local tradespeople. Most recently, in 2018, Chris was made CEO of Reality Mine, having previously been a non-exec. Reality Mine is a technology company which provides data on consumer behavior on mobile devices. A three-time CEO, Chris has been at the cutting edge of digital research for over 20 years and has built, acquired, merged and sold businesses operating in public markets and under private equity ownership, and has had some extreme highs and lows, as you will hear, while retaining remarkable poise and composure. I started out, as we always do on Meet the CEO, by asking Chris why he became a CEO. Well, thanks, Phil. Great great to be here on the podcast today. Um, the, the truthful answer is actually I, I didn't. I wanted to become an entrepreneur, and becoming an entrepreneur led me to become a CEO. So maybe I'll just sort of stack back slightly. The early part of I'm 55 now, so getting on, but the early part of my career was in the corporate world. Um, and I think inevitably, you know, when you're relatively junior in the corporate world, you feel like a small cog in a big machine. And I wanted to get on and found that relatively frustrating. Then um, later on, I became a uh, strategy consultant after doing an MBA. And again, I think although we were working with some great clients, it was very interesting and some very smart people. I felt a little bit, you know, on the sidelines as an advisor, not particularly accountable. Um, plus, I'm going back to the era of 2000 when kind of entrepreneurship, there was a lot in the air because of the dot-com era and so on. And one thing led to another, I decided to, um, to chuck in conventional employment and become an entrepreneur. And I co-founded a company called, uh, well, at the time it was called The Mobile Channel. It became Research Now um, with a guy called Andrew Cooper. And we started life um, with 100 pounds of share capital as joint managing directors. And uh, we went we went from there on a bit of a journey where um, fairly early on, I became CEO um, of the business. But you're a you're a glutton for punishment in a way, because having had a very successful career at, at Research Now and built a business and, and eventually sold it, you've gone back for more three times over. Yeah, no, I'm on my third third CEO role now. I think that's right. And I've often said people have heard me say I think it's the it's normally the best job in the building if, if we still use buildings all that much. Um, some days, of course, I think it's the worst job in the building because of the the degree of accountability and and pressure and and so on um, that you can be on the end of for various reasons. But it's the best job in the building. So you're right. I went from research now, which was my I guess formative CEO role, where 
I think I was able to kind of grow as the company grew um, and so establish all the skills that, that made me sort of fit for purpose, which I certainly wouldn't have had at the outset. Um, I then joined a business and became effectively a, um, a follower CEO to an entrepreneur, a business called Rated People, which is the UK sort of find a tradesman type business. Um, and then similarly, I'm, I'm these days I'm CEO of a company called Reality Mine, where again, I've followed two founders. And in a sense, I'm the professional CEO that the investors brought in to try and take the company to the next level. Yeah, so I, for me, it's an interesting thing about you. You could easily have stepped back after research now and said, said I'm done. I've I've built a business, sold it, and I'm gonna you know do something else. But but it feels like there's something in you that that wanted more. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, you know, I think when I finished research, now I was only what forty years old or early forties, so plenty of time left. And uh, I did actually take a year off and <laughs> learned to learn to sail and did all sorts of fun things, and then and didn't pressure myself to decide what to do next. But um, I very much believe in serendipity and sort of following just avenues and seeing what emerges. And I was actually giving a talk at, at London Business School, and one of the sponsors of the talk approached me and said, "Hey, we've got this company in our, our portfolio, which is rated people, and you know maybe it could be your next project." And so I met the founder, I met the board members, um, spoke to the investors, looked at the business and thought, actually, why not? And sort of went for it. And I think that's, um, if I look back over my career, that's that's one of the facets that that I think I, I can see in myself, which is I'm quite opportunistic. I take things as they come along. I'll take chances. I'll take risks. And, uh, and, and you know, there was, a, there was a time after Ready People when I became, I sort of went plural, as they say, and I was doing a few things. So... Um, I joined the board of HomeServe, which at the time was a FTSE 250 company. Um, I joined the board of, and that was as, obviously as a non-exec director. I, I joined the board of RealityMine originally as a non-exec director. I was um, chairing the Alumni Council of London Business School and joined the governing body. So I was doing a few things simultaneously. And actually, I found that quite frustrating. I realized mm -hmm. that um, for me, getting sort of stuck into something, one main thing um, is important. And I guess... You know, for some of us, maybe all of us, work gives you a, a certain part of your purpose, your sense of purpose, um, and I enjoy it. You know, I, I've, I feel so sorry for these people that on a Sunday night think, oh, no, it's work tomorrow. You know, I, I can't remember ever feeling like that, um, which, yeah, I'm glutton for punishment. Yeah, interesting, because I, I think um, going plural is sometimes like the end goal for, for a lot of people, or it, it feels like it is, but you having been there, you you kind of came back for more as we said yeah. um the last question on that sort of path to ceo uh, the the three different ceo experiences is they've been different ownership structures so one was entrepreneur mm. you know self self ownership to a certain extent albeit with with andrew cooper and you know and and eventually listing and you had the the aim experience mm. um then rated people and then uh uh, reality mine you know you're you're accountable to uh to investors in a in a slightly different way so has that ownership structure changed the nature of the job um i'm not so sure i mean i think people people often talk about you know public versus private which is better and i say well you know as a ceo um what's better is being ahead of your budget um, irrespective of the investor base and i think i you know i sort of stand by that um, you're, you're right. The, the, the role I have now and the previous role of, uh, you know, growth VCs who, um, you know, relatively small private companies where they're actually quite close to the company. They're very close to the metrics. 
Um, so they know a lot about, you know, what's going on in the business. Um, and I, I don't know. I think uh, Research Now was, was very different. As you said, it started off as an angel, angel invested company once we got moving. And then we did actually do a growth VC run, but then took it public on AIM. And then ultimately merged it with an American private company. So it was back into US private equity ownership where I was still CEO. Um, but I think the fundamentals of what, you know, what investors um, want, how they operate through a board, what's expected of you as a CEO, um, you know, a lot of those things are common, I would say. Yeah, interesting. So it, ultimately, it's about the job and hitting yeah. the numbers, who, whoever, whoever is you know, ultimately benefiting from that. Okay, so moving on to our, our next question, um, and it's more about the personal and how you manage yourself. What, what part of your day is sacrosanct and preserved at all costs? Yeah, you know, I thought about this, and I would love to have been able to give you an answer like, oh, I get up at 5.30 to go swimming every day because, you know, that's that's who I am. Um, that's just not true. I'm a bit of a night owl. And the, the truth is, if anything is sacrosanct, and, and mostly it's possible, it's, you know, the last hour or so of the day when everyone's gone to bed and I'm the last person up and it's a quiet time and it's a self-indulgent time. And I can, you know, I can watch news. I can play a game on my iPad. I can, you know, watch some late night TV, a box set and, and maybe an extra one as well. Um, and for me, that I guess that's wind down time. The, the rest of the time, particularly, you know, as a CEO in a busy environment, there are many, many calls on your time. The day can mm. be flat out if you're traveling on business. You know, that can sort of obviously stretch your day because of the travel and so on. But that time before bed, um, yeah. Uh, interestingly, or maybe not, this is a bit self-indulgent, I discovered that I have some Neanderthal DNA doing one of these DNA tests. I think we all do, by the way. But one, yeah. well, no, I think collectively we do, but individually, some people apparently don't. But there we are. I have a little bit more than average. Um, and apparently I have the DNA markers for being a night owl, the night owl characteristics. Some of this is genetic. I read a very interesting article on that. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so it's it's in the evening and it's decompression time, and it's kind of it's kind of your me time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just just the quick follow up on that because you you referred to it. How does that work when you're traveling? And you know, kind of, is it still is it is there still a kind of little portion at the end of the day? There, there probably is. Yeah. Even if I was out for a dinner and you know going for drinks, whatever, and then staying in a hotel room, I probably and it might be one a.m. I might still not go to sleep for another half an hour because I'm catching up on, I, I guess it's our age, but you, you've got the iPad next to the bed and you catch up on email. And, and even that is a sense of personal time where you're making all the choices about how to use that time. No one's placing any calls on you. Your emails aren't going to get replied to. Okay, yes, there are time zones, but generally speaking. So yeah, so I, I think that's that's pretty much consistent. Hey, interesting. And I'm going off piste here for a second because <laughs> I I need decompression time too. I think we all do. Um, and I'm an extrovert. And the 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 uh the the tradition is that you know extroverts love being around people, but I still need that decompression. Mm. You and I have worked together, and I actually can't tell. I'm not sure whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or somewhere in between. Do you do you know? I really don't know. Um I'm maybe you're in you the middle. Years ago, I would have done that Myers-Briggs test and, and many other things. And I'm sure that, that there were all sorts of letters I could give you if I could remember. But but I think I probably flip-flop. I think there are times I can feel myself being quite introverted and not wanting to particularly engage with people. And other times, quite the opposite. Um, you know, so yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe that means I'm in the middle. But actually, I think I can span quite a wide range 
um, quite a distribution around that middle. Yeah, I think I think you might be flexible on on that one. Yeah. Um, so the next the next question we we've kind of talked about, mm. um, uh, and and it's it's a particularly tough one for you, um, and it's what's the most challenging situation you've encountered in in business, and and what did you learn from it? Yeah. Okay. So so back in two thousand seven, I was running uh, research now as CEO. We were um, public on AIM company was uh, still relatively small. So we we're turning over about six, seven million pounds. And one uh, weekend in January 2007, one of our staff, Kathy Marlowe, was uh, actually murdered in our office in London. We've had about 100 people. Um, so that's pretty unusual. I think not a lot of CEOs will tell you that. I think I, I heard, I'm not sure it's true, but there was something like, I don't know, two or three workplace murders a year in the UK. So a very rare event. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, sort of over, overnight, of course, everything gets turned completely upside down. Um, you've got my, my job overnight became, you know, thinking about our staff and the impact on them. Um, thinking about her family, Kathy was a New Zealander. So she had a family in New Zealand who'd sort of lost their daughter on the other side of the world for several weeks. The, the, the case was a whodunit. Um, it wasn't clear, you know, who the murderer was. So there was huge uncertainty. Um, so part of the, part of my job at the time was helping the police with their investigation of, of what had actually happened in our premises. Um, the national media were on my doorstep within a few hours of, of the news breaking. Um, so I had some of the major papers sort of knocking on the door, not, not quite Prince Harry level, but not, nonetheless, it was, it was quite, um, an eye opener how quickly the national media picked up the story and wanted, wanted me to make a statement. As I said, we were public, so there was a kind of the investor relations piece to it. You've got investors wanting to know what's going on. Is this going to take the company down? Who did it? Uh, we just actually announced some annual results. So it was sort of, we were in the process of an investor roadshow, which I had to suspend for a day, but carry on. Um, and then, you know, finally, I had to try and keep the business running. Mm. Um, you know, you've still got people, clients, and, and so on. Um, so it was, you know, it was sort of a, a very, very, very tough time. Um, Half our staff of about 100 in London went through kind of grief and trauma counselling. Mm. Um, so it really was quite quite surreal. You, you asked me about learnings. I mean, I think I think one thing that I think most people know, most CEOs know, um, you know, comes back to people. I think it was was it Bill Clinton's advisor that used that phrase. It's about the economy, stupid. Well, I think the advice to a CEO would be it's about the people, stupid. And an event like that, I mean, it doesn't have to be as, as extreme as a murder, but it really brings home how, how it's all about the people and always was. Um, nothing's more important than, you know, trying to do the right thing by the people around you 360 degrees. And that's what your job becomes, probably always is. Um, so I, I think that was, you know, that was sort of one of the learnings. And, you know, we could go into more, more detail about what that meant. But, but you know, that was, that was part of it. I think the other thing I learned was about me personally, which was about my bandwidth that suddenly I'd actually forgotten, but I, I was actually ill when this event happened. And I think I was taking antibiotics that somehow had ended up in the drawer of my desk at the office that became a crime scene that I, that I totally forgot about. And I just went into overdrive mode and I was literally working about 120 hours a week for several weeks because of the time zones with New Zealand, because of the police investigation, because we'd had to move within a day to a disaster recovery site to try and keep the business running. 
because of the clients, because of the investors and so on. Um, and, and I was able to sort of switch to a gear that I didn't even know I had. Hmm. I wouldn't want to be in that gear very much. And I think it's very sustainable, but for several weeks I was, I was working incredibly hard. And I think, you know, for the next, probably the remainder of that year, it was a very, very tough time on all sorts of levels, um, including for me personally. But what, one of the things one of the counselors said to me was, you, um, you'll feel guilty about this, Chris, but hmm. even from an event like this, you are allowed to take positives. Um, you might feel that self-indulgent at a moment when you know, a family's lost a daughter, you know, your, your team has lost um, a colleague, a much-loved colleague, but you are allowed to take positives. And one of the positives I took was, wow, look at how people have come together. Look at how the team has come together to try and keep us all afloat, both as people and as a business. Um, it really was quite striking how that happened. Well, uh, it's just it's just horrific, and it's still kind of um, it's still emotional to to hear about it, um, and I'm sure it's still still emotional for you. Um, obviously, primarily, it's about Kathy and and her her family and and friends and the impact on them. Y- you've actually done my follow ups for me in the sense that I was going to ask about you and the impact on you, and I think. The 120-hour work week is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty telling, uh, and it must have been uh, really hard to get through. And and the other, the other follow-up was around, um, you know, learnings, which is feels like a bit of a cynical thing to, to ask, but but there must be some, and you've you've spoken to that. I I guess mm. if there's just one probe into that, it's mm. the focus on people. But how how has it changed? you know, pre and post, day-to-day in a situation, how do you think you would now uh, react to a, a people issue in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have done before? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm not sure that differently, but I think, you know, when businesses have ups and downs and the downs are often around people situations. And I think, having been through an event like you know in a kind of small company where a lot of you have had a formative experience to lose one of your colleagues to murder on your watch it doesn't feel like it can get much worse than that as a leader and so everything else almost pulls into not insignificance but is kind of small beer Mm. and so it comes down to you know let's do the right thing by the people let's let's focus on the people Um, a good business is an outcome of getting that people model right whatever that means um, so I think I, I probably worry less. I probably, you know, not, not that I think I was a panicker, but, but I think you, you know, you get older, you get wiser and I think you see things in context. And so something that perhaps to a younger, less experienced CEO might seem like a major crisis. Maybe it's a bit less so when you've, we've been through something like that. And that's a good thing because mm. you're trying to take, you're trying to take good measured decisions, you know, get the judgments right, uh, focus on the important things, whatever that means. You know, that, that's your job um so yes but but to be sort of specific any more than that I'm, I'm not sure i think it's all a function of context right yeah but i i think i think that answer's re- really helpful that it's about the ultimate kind of perspective really and 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 what's important after that um yeah. is the people um yeah. and getting getting that right um which we'll we'll come back to mm. um so next question um who has most influenced the way you lead? 
Yeah, this is a great question. And I thought about it a fair bit um, because I suspect all of us are an amalgam of different influences and, and experiences. And so we we sort of pick and mix things we've seen from you know previous bosses, previous leaders, maybe leaders we see on through the media. People talk about, I don't know, Steve Jobs or whomever. Um, my, my answer is a bit closer to home. My uh, chairman for a long time at Research Now was a chap called Jeff Westmore. And I think, you know, my leadership style and how I sort of operate as a CEO, I think is in no small part thanks to Jeff's mentorship and kind of nurturing and, and challenging over, over the, the kind of decade or so that we worked together. Um, maybe I'll just give you a little bit more color on that. And I think Jeff was um, one of those leaders who'd worked out very quickly that um, it's about the people. So get the right people in the right jobs and trust them because that's why you've employed them to do those, those jobs. So you don't need a long um, exposition of why they think X, Y, Z. Um, you just need a summary. But more important than that, what you do need is a proposal. So you know, hold people accountable to doing something about the insight that they've had or the problem that they've seen. You know, diagnosing a problem or making an observation is not enough you know, for a CEO. It's okay, well, yep, I hear you. What are you gonna do about it? Mm. I guess I'm describing a, a chairman style that worked for me as a CEO, but I think I apply that to my own team. So I trust them. Um, in other words, I've, I've tried to make sure I, I think that we've got the right people in the right jobs for the company at any point in time. Um, we were aligned around a plan, but my expectation of them is, okay, so what are you going to do about X, Y, Z? I don't want to delve into the detail of why you think that particularly. It sounds roughly right. I'm good with that, but, but what are you going to do? I, th I think the other thing that Jeff... Um, impressed on on me and i think it was a hallmark of, of research now and i think it it's probably a a combination of of um my co-founder andrew and, and jeff and myself but i think we were quite a decisive company culturally culturally and i think there are a lot of organizations that probably aren't as decisive and should be more decisive um now now clearly you want to get the decisions right as much as possible rather than just take decisions um, and that's not always possible but i think what you can do is um, challenge yourself to take fast decisions, work out why they're likely to be right. And if they're not right, do something about it. You know, no sacred cows, reverse, U-turn, do whatever, try something else. Um, but I think too many businesses, too many leaders probably spend too long processing information, humming and hawing, weighing up risks. Um, and I think decisiveness is something that I've sort of learned on the job, as it were. Yeah, interesting. And interesting that that in part at least came from from jeff westmore mm. um because he he was i guess more than much more than a chairman he he you know you describe him as a mentor and i i i get the sense and got the sense he he backed you as a person you know almost more than or as much as the business and that kind of came through yeah and interestingly i think sometimes from other non-exec directors on the board jeff took some criticism for that um, now that you made it, you sort of touched on a point, which was, I think, some entities thought maybe he was too supportive of me at times and not challenging of me. But I think Jeff having, you know, Jeff was a global managing partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. You know, he'd led big business units in his own right. And I think he knew that a good chairman, I think, knows that the CEO job is a tough job. And so, yes, of course, the role of NEDs is to, is to challenge and question um, executive management but also it's to support the CEO a lot of the time. Um, particularly, I think, when you've got a younger, less experienced CEO who is learning on the job. 
but but I guess you think that the fundamentals of the leader you've got are, are right for the business. Um, but trust me, you know, Jeff, back to that decisiveness, if he had thought at any point that I wasn't the right person for the job, it would have been eventually a one-way ticket to me not being in that job. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think it was a blank check, you know, quite the opposite. Yeah, interesting combination of... Uh of support and, and, and toughness. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So moving on to, um, your team, um, mm. we've already touched on, on people, mm. but what is the secret to building an effective executive team? Yeah, this, this is, this is a really good question again. Um, I think I said that to your last couple of questions. Um, and, and I think because, you know, one of the key things a CEO has to do is, is build an effective you know, leadership team or senior management team. And I think that's obvious, but often I don't think it's achieved. I think, you know, a lot of CEOs might spend their time on, on things outside the company, maybe with, with clients, with partnerships or with investors or on an ego trip around winning awards or whatever it might be. Um, but I think that at the heart of, of a good business will be your, your choices as a leader about the members of that team and how you kind of bind them together to make them effective. I personally don't actually think there is a silver bullet or if there is it's it's the blind spot that you have <laughs> and that will be contextual according to to the leader that you are you know the i think the elements of the puzzle are the people themselves so there's some obvious sort of table stake stuff like do they have the right skills for the job um are they complementary um is there sufficient diversity in the team and i don't just mean diversity in the kind of current woke sense but also of you know opinions experiences um are they bringing different things to the table we used to talk at research now about being a broad church. And I think meaning that we had quite a, um, a diverse group of people in the company. Um, and that was a, you know, definitely a positive thing. Um, I then think you have to bind that team in around, you know, clear goals, clear strategy, clear choices and trade-offs that you're, you're willing to make. And there has to be good, you know, cultural fit um, between those people so that you're kind of like-minded about how we do things. Not, so, so you're like-minded about what are we doing and you're like-minded about and how do we do it. Um, but, you know, it's not kumbaya. I think inevitably you need certain degrees of friction. Um, if, if you're intent on, you know, I've been very lucky to work in several fast growth businesses and I think that comes with a certain amount of friction and that's okay. You know, as long as I think people play, play fair most of the time, um, that, that's a healthy thing as well to try and push, push the business and push your success further. That's... That's a you know symptom of that. So I think all those things I've, I've sort of rambled, but as a package, I think that that comes to what can make an, an effective team. Yeah, no, I think it's a very complete answer. Um, and getting that getting that kind of mix and chemistry right is and and the the right balance of friction and and you know positive behavior is is the CEO's job. And back to the the people point is mm. is probably the main job and if you're not focusing on making that work then you're not really doing the the ceo yeah. job i guess well and the, and the joy is i think when you if you invest time as you should in in trying to get that team right and of course it's never right you're always shaping it as as a company grows you might need to bring someone new in or maybe someone isn't working out or needs to move sideways or whatever it might be um you're always tinkering but when you get it fundamentally right it's if you have a leadership style like mine that's quite empowering it actually frees up a lot of time so you should be then 
indulge, not indulging, you should be able to spend time in things like, okay, let's think about the longer term strategy. Let's think about partnerships. Let's think about in investment or whatever it might be, where perhaps you're uniquely able because of your position or, or whatever to, to do certain things and let your team do the kind of day-to-day work of running the company. Yeah. There's a great feeling when it, when it comes together. Yeah. But it doesn't yeah. always doesn't always come <laughs> together and yeah. always stay together. But yeah. Um so sort of looking looking forward, um what is the and this is a broad question, I guess. Um, mm. what is the biggest change on your horizon? Yeah, so so I thought about this from a kind of personal level, thought, well, actually at a personal level, you know, I I could sort of tell about lots of things like my kids going off to university and things like that, but but actually, I'm I'm sort of steady as she goes. Personally, I'm planning to stay as a CEO for the foreseeable future. I've got no desire to to retire or anything. So I think I bring your question back to my world of business, which um, I'm working in the insight industry, as we used to say, the market research industry. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest change that has been coming, but is still coming, and, and almost certainly is accelerating, is the impact of technology. And pr- probably a lot of people would say that you know, the impact of technology on my sector or my business is is huge. And I think if you if you step back, you know, the world of market research is is really about if you boil it down, a couple of things. In the old days, if we think about the twentieth century, um, it was about measurement. So simply measuring you know, what media people are consuming. You know, what are people watching on TV, for example. Um, what are they buying in in different retailers? What are they buying in the shops? And the other aspect of market research was why? Why are these people doing what what they're doing? What what do they think? And that's where the world of kind of survey research came along many many decades ago um, to survey people. And I think interestingly, you know, what we measure and how we try and assess what people are thinking from a kind of consumer research perspective haven't changed very much yet. We're we're still measuring video but if you think about you know the measurement of video for example it wasn't that long ago that you could have a tv ratings panel it would tell you how many people watching coronation street and that would determine you know the value of an advertising spot for for a big brand at 7 45 p.m on a a tuesday night whenever coronation street runs um now of course video is a very different beast Mm. it's not only is it fragmented across all sorts of you know, providers and services and streaming platforms and short form video like TikTok and YouTube, but also the economic model underlying measurement has changed. So it's no longer about a single you know, TV ratings panel determines the value of advertising associated with video. Now the economic model is completely different. You know, Apple TV's motive for existing, Amazon's motive for having Amazon Prime Video, um, Netflix's model, they're all they're different ecosystems um, and they're very much walled garden players that aren't working in the same way that traditional say broadcasters would work. And so the world of, if you pick you know, medium by medium, you could look at the impact on market research and that is yet to play out, but is accelerating towards us very, very quickly. So the market research agencies that have a big sort of revenue stream for measurement, that's going to get, let's just say interesting over the, the years ahead. Similarly, in terms of what people think, I've been reading these fascinating articles just in the last you know, we're living in this era as we're recording this of, you know, chat GPT. You can't open, um, I was going to say open a newspaper. You can't click on a web link or flick <laughs> on a television screen without hearing about, you know, the latest chat GPT. And every B2B email is full of, oh, so-and-so is using chat GPT for this. 
Um, and there's some interesting articles about how this impacts the world of survey research. You know, can you synthetically create humans almost, some people are suggesting? Um, can you uh, almost do away with some of the primary inputs from consumers because consumers may not know as they answer surveys quite what they think or what they'll do or what they remember. Um, in other words, there's so much bias in, in the data you're, that you're collecting that maybe you need to move to a combination of behavioral data overlaid with massive AI. Mm. Now, I still think there's going to be a role for, for sort of particularly qualitative research of real consumer sort of input signal managed at, at scale, actually. But there's no doubt that the overlay of intelligence that can be put on top of the source data to combine data sources and understand you know, patterns and implications in the data. We're still relatively early days, but that's going to be you know, immense. Um, so again, the, the sector that I work in is in for a lot of change. Um, I feel like your next business is in there somewhere, Chris. <laughs> You've got one more in you. <laughs> well, that's a good idea. Maybe we could do it together. Sounds um, like you're gainfully employed anyway. But I mean, Reality Mine is already in engaged in quite a lot of that stuff in terms of measurement anyway, isn't it? Well, yes, we're, we're effectively a signal collector. So we capture yep. behavioral data from things like uh, mobile phones and, and digital devices. Um, but it's actually our clients who then do the clever things with that data. And I guess what I'm suggesting is that the nature of that client base and what they do with the data that we collect is, is going to evolve, I think, over, over time quite rapidly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you've been you've been at the cutting edge of, of technology and market research for probably coming on 20 years now. So, uh, and it does, it, it does keep moving. Um, again, you've, you've preempted my question. I was going to ask the, the AI question and, and yeah. uh, you, you, you've got there. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's move on to the final uh, quick fire round, if you like, yeah. uh, which is, you know, what would be your three pieces of advice for anyone aspiring to become a CEO? Yeah. Okay. So I think I think my first, if you're really set on it, um, I'd have a question, which is why. <laughs> but if yeah. you're really set on it, I'd uh, I'd say, well, the first thing to remember is it's about the people, um, and I know we've touched on that. But but the way I would frame it as, think of people as a 360 degree, you know, opportunity. Um, so think about the people above you. By which I mean, do you need advisors? Do you need board members? Do you need investors? You know, who are those people? You need to be working on that and thinking about that. Um, think about the people that are around you in terms of clients and, and partners. Um, and think about the people that, that you'll be leading or trying to lead over time. That if there's one thought sort of keeping your mind on your journey from perhaps a startup of one or or perhaps you're you're pitching in you know, you're getting promoted in a corporate role where suddenly you are the CEO for the first time. You've come from running a business unit, whatever it might be. You probably know a lot of that already, but nonetheless, you're going to have to rethink your 360 degree model about people. So that'd be my first point. You said quick fire round, so I'll speed up. <laughs> That's um, okay. <laughs> the, the second one, and whether you're, you know, you're, you're coming in as an entrepreneurial CEO, which funny enough is how I almost answered your first, your first point, because that's how I think about it. Um, there was a very famous article uh, by a couple of academics um, called Goffey and Jones um, called Why Should Anyone Be Led by You? I think it was actually or was or is the most downloaded article ever from HBR. And I, I think that's an important point, which is don't become a CEO because, you know, you want to be the boss, you want to be the leader. It's about your ego. 
um, you know, it, it's about your team. It's about your business. And I think that's my third point. Remember, it's not about you. It's about the business. You know, you, you, a, a byproduct of, of creating a great business um, is that you'll, you can win plenty of plaudits and accolades and, and make money and all that, that stuff, but it's about the business. And I think you, my personal perspective is be selfless um, to a significant extent. If you want to be successful, put the business first, ask yourself in many instances, what does the business, not what do I need, but what does the business need? That's, that's very often the right question. Very, very wise words. And I don't think I could do any better in, in summarizing um, the conversation. So thank you for, for wrapping it up beautifully. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us on Meet the CEO. It's been great. Thanks, Phil. Great to be here. And, and I've always wanted to say this now, which is that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what an emotional roller coaster of a conversation, and what a lot of hard won lessons from Chris. We started out hearing about how frustration with corporate life, serendipity, and opportunism have driven Chris's path to three different CEO roles, and how he thinks his Neanderthal DNA may be responsible for his night owl habits. Then we heard how having started and grown a business and listed it as a public company, Chris had the terrible experience of leading the business after a murder in the workplace. Chris suddenly had to communicate with the bereaved family, traumatized staff, the police, and anxious investors all at once, and ended up working 120 hour weeks. Amazingly, despite that, Chris still says being CEO is the best job in the building and came out with a reinforced belief that focusing on people is the essence of the CEO job. People focus came out repeatedly in his answers about building a team and managing stakeholders. It comes through as a profound belief that has informed the way he does the job in all three CEO roles. I love the insight that if you get the balance right in your team and empower them, that frees up time for the CEO to think about the future. Looking forward, Chris sees the impact of technology developing even further in market research, even to the point of AI helping us by creating synthetic humans. I get the feeling that Chris has at least one more business in him before he's done. Chris wrapped up by reminding us that it's not about you, that the best advice if you want to be CEO is to be selfless and put the business first. So thanks to Chris. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you're enjoying these podcasts, then please share them with others. If you're new to our show, welcome. Thanks for giving us a try. And why not take a look at the back catalogue where you'll find a myriad of different perspectives and valuable lessons. In the meantime, best wishes for your own career and looking forward to welcoming you to the next episode of Meet the CEO from Positive Momentum.